Welcome to another episode of You Should Read This uh, with me, Richard Acton, and Tom van der Luba. This time, we're going to take a look at this book. <laughs> what is that, the Dutch version or the German yeah, version? A, no, it's a Dutch version. I wrote Dutch it. Version. I've got the English version I read, here. I read Dutch. Um, uh, the Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good by Michael J. Sandel. He's a political uh, philosophy professor at Harvard. Uh, he's also uh, been uh, quite the media figure um, with uh, some very popular series. He's, uh, yeah, also the author of Justice, uh, What's the Right Thing to Do? Uh, and that's this book, Tyranny of Merit. So uh, you chose this, uh, Tom. Uh, perhaps it's uh, best, again, for you to intro it and just sort of take us through the, the main structure of the book and then we can dive in. Yeah, what I uh, why I chose this on on the one hand, it's a pretty well known book, so it has been on the bestseller list, which is for a topic like uh, meritocracy, astonishing or interesting. Uh, that's one reason. The second reason is that uh, what I like is, um, I mean, I'm always quite skeptical about this whole idea of the sky's the limit and the American idea of of the American dream. Uh, mm. I often quote, if you believe in the American dream, you should move to Denmark. Um, because let's say from a statistical point, uh, the social mobility in other parts of the world is much higher. So I found it interesting to dive into this topic um, by by taking this example of a, a professor who is a professor at Harvard. Uh, and he was a philosopher and, and, and talks about this whole big idea of meritocracy. Yeah, and uh, it's um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating way in I think to this problem that that most of the West is now facing around inequality. Um, yeah, he makes some very powerful arguments um, against meritocracy, which uh, which I really enjoyed. So, do you want to start by t- taking us through the, the flow of, of the book? Uh, yeah, what does he? Yeah, I can do. So what 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 he does is what I think is very interesting. He um, he dives into it, and especially let's say the first part I found um, very interesting in that way that 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 this whole idea we all have grown up with this this idea of meritocracy, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I, I I would say probably we we are all big believers in this so that's the starting point and then you're reading the book and then you you start to question this whole idea of meritocracy and that's more or less the starting point of the book uh and that and that this whole idea of social mobility um that it has on the one hand has winners but it also has losers and that's the first uh first part um yeah and then it depends a little bit how we want to dive into this. I mean, he, he makes a lot of connections also to current poli- politics and Trump, etc. Um, but I think the starting point, more from a scientific point of view, would be, but that's, that's a, a personal thing, is that this whole idea of, of uh, um, meritocracy has this negative side that in the past, you could say, I don't have any chances. I'm a son mm. of a farmer. I will stay a farmer forever. Uh, but then suddenly in a world where our meritocratic system is, is, is the leading system, 
it's you can't say anymore uh, I was not able to do this so this whole idea of social mobility has also a negative side uh, that means that somebody who's not successful the whole framing is has to blame him, him or herself because you had the chances to become successful and yes. I think that's a very powerful so that would be for me the core of the of the of the whole book, so to say. Yes, the sort of if you like the, the toxic side effects of um, not that that's phrase he uses of uh, of meritocracy, and he contrasts the I suppose the the meritocratic mind fret, fret, mindset with. Um, the humility that exists outside of that, okay? he uses quote there, but for the grace of God or the accident of fortune go I. So that, that idea that I'm at the whim of God or universal forces is, is gone when, when we live in a meritocratic world. Um, the perfect uh, meritocracy banishes all sense of gift or grace it diminishes our capacity to see ourselves as sharing a common fate. And he makes that point in the, in the first chapter. Um, and seen from below, the hubris of elites is galling. Nobody likes to be looked down upon. Um, but the meritocratic faith adds insult to injury. The notion that your fate is in your hands, that you can make it if you try, is a double-edged sword inspiring in one way but invidious in another yeah it's uh it, it's interesting to reflect on that you know and, and especially you and i i suppose in some ways who um have ended up relatively near the top in the sorting mechanism uh it's good to read a book like this in a way because you know, he's laying it out from every possible vantage point in society yeah there's i mean there's just there's a, there's a lot of people talking about this because uh uh, it's a negative side of social mobility or meritocracy, and I think another thing is is important to 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 mention is that uh, he he quotes uh, Michael Young, um, an Englishman who wrote the book The Rise of Meritocracy in, uh, in 1958, and 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 when I when I remember correctly. Uh, this was more somebody who was at the, at the labor, let's say, mm. side of the political spectrum, uh, but but already saw that 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 there would be looked uh, down uh, upon, let's say, people who would not really make it because in the past there was a kind of solidarity, and that's also what you see in, and he also describes this in the book about the political side, the political left wing, I think, will will come to that. And it this whole idea of solidarity changes uh, because of this whole idea of, I mean, everybody had the possibilities. The question is, is this really the case or not? Uh, we'll also come to that. But um, uh, I think the starting point, I mean, I didn't read the book, Michael Young, The Rise of Meritocracy. But what I found interesting is that that somebody already saw this negative expect, uh, let's say, 50 years ago and said, okay, this will be, it has a positive side, meritocracy, but mm. it also has a negative has a negative side. Yeah. 
and he opens with the you know the, the Trump phenomenon in 2016, um, and really uh, taxed those who who believe that um, somehow this was just about you know a bunch of angry racists who who uh, yeah who voted for Trump. Um, and he says the hard reality is that Trump was elected by tapping a wellspring of anxieties, frustrations, and legitimate grievances to which the mainstream parties had no compelling answers. Well, and not just no compelling answer, but no no respect for right. If you think about Hillary Clinton and you know her de- deplorables, uh, yeah, and uh, so I think he's 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 providing. I think I'm. I, just another way to look at this whole phenomenon that we're all living through in, in um, terms of populist discontent. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. So I think that's that's the second uh, aspect of the book, which I find very compelling or very interesting, is that a lot of people they still don't understand populism, and I and I think he is really Michael Sandel is really one of the people who tries to explain why mm. Trump or also the Brexit. Yeah. Uh, he 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 explains it. So so you have this, let's say, also left wing politicians who are those exceptions and use the possibility of meritocracy to to climb the the, le- the social ladder, and 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 they are disconnected to their voters, and that creates yeah. populism. And 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 uh, this kind and and the only one who understands this. Or the only one, but in American context, is Trump who understands this. In the Brexit context, yeah, uh, you have exactly the same phenomena. That it's a kind of anti-vote. That's the only voting poss- with your middle finger. Yeah, you yeah that's the only yeah. possibility which is left because everybody is not taking you seriously. Um, uh, and 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 what he also explains in a very good way, I think it's it's. There's this whole aspect of smart uh, and and intelligent, etc. Everything is is framed as smart, and 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 those people left behind who are losing their jobs and of globalization, the factories are were moved to China, etc. They lost their jobs, but they not only lost their jobs, but they also lost their their self-esteem. And I think yeah. he, he he describes this in a very uh, good and accurate way. Yeah. Yeah, and and there was a couple of things that come to mind. He mentions in the book Trump's quote, "I love the poorly educated," right? Uh, and this idea that the non-smart people, the dumb people who didn't who didn't get to university, goes on to describe the whole the way in which universities are are sorting mechanisms, as he calls it. Um, yeah, means that you get an entire swathe of a population who uh, feel looked down upon because they haven't gone to college. Um, and they don't have voices in the political class. I mean, he makes the point uh, later in the book that uh, in 1979, 37% of Labour MPs came from a manual occupation background by 2015 over only 7% did. So from 37% to 7% uh, over those decades, uh, a drop in uh, non-educated MPs in the UK and in Germany's Bundestag, 83% of MPs are university graduates, fewer than 2% of high school vocational training, and then you take 
you know, other, other European nations and had a similar situation in the US, but we've basically got a political class across the West pretty much entirely controlled to uh, educated people. Yeah. And what I like is the connection he makes with the whole American philosophy. That's also, I think, mm. a major part of the book. You can make it if you try, which which is just in the in that has two sides. It's just on the one hand, it's just not the case, and the people who have made it, they should understand that they were just lucky bastards. Uh, and yeah. this whole idea, also in the language, fortune is in the end. That's a from a from a linguistic point. Fortune fortuna means you were lucky. Mm. So so if you if you are well off, it was you were lucky, fortune, fortuna. But this whole connotation has has disappeared. So this idea is if I am successful, it's not because I was lucky, because I was a nobleman and I inherited the land of my family. No. If I'm very well off and if I'm successful, I don't have to be thankful. It I was not fortunate. No. no. I was the guy who went to Ivy League University. I really studied a lot. And what I find very remarkable in the book is that there's a lot of numbers on 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 how many people with which backgrounds attend Ivy League universities and he's a Harvard professor. And then he describes in the book his students. And he asks his students, do you think you're lucky or you deserve it? And all this is now we deserve that we really worked for it. <laughs> but he shows in the book that all those students from those Ivy League universities, they come from those rich neighborhoods. And so depending on your postal code, your postal code decides, let's say, about social, social mobility in your life. So if I am, let's say, from a privileged background, you can just take the postal code or the zip code of your parents. And then you can say with very high accuracy, uh, what the chances will be that you will be on the social ladder at, at, at what, and you will have what status and what income. That what statistics say. Mm-hmm. And, let's, and we can dive into this chapter where he describes how the whole application process uh, works of Ivy League universities. But what I find striking is, and I see this over and over, also successful entrepreneurs, etc. they always think they were just totally smart and much smarter than the rest of the, of the crowd. Now, there's mm. an enormous amount of luck involved. It doesn't mean that those people also really worked hard for it, etc. And perhaps they were also smart. But in the end, it's just uh, this kind of uh, coin. And then you can be lucky or you can be unlucky. Uh, and, and people should more reflect on the fact that they were lucky. And what I especially like in the book is the whole chapter about uh, Obama. Because... Um, because what he does, I think, in a very good way is he uses also language and, and what kind of words are used in, uh, in those speeches, which I find a very strong part also, uh, this kind of quantitative analysis of, of, of the way language is used uh, in, in, in building this, uh, yeah, this culture and this, this kind of understanding. Yeah, and this idea of the, the smart thing to do. Uh, that yeah, this constant refrain. You know, what's the smart thing to do? Uh, and uh, well, and I suppose that speaks to this 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 
almost this technocratic kind of entitlement uh, that that it exists amongst you know the educated who now obviously dominate the political class. Well, you know, well, we're educated. We're the smart ones. We should know what to do. And uh, I think that just causes such resentment. I can speak. I remember speaking about Brexit to a, a celebrated academic who um, who was baffled by why all these people in England quote like quote voted against their interests. Uh, and I thought that really uh, illustrated just you know the level of arrogance amongst yeah the, the educated class and the disdain that they have um, for the for the non smart. You know, for the Trump voters, for the Brexit voters. I say, I wonder if we should go on. I was just going to say, and he, he winds it right back in, in, in chapter two um, called Great Because Good. Um, yeah, he, he winds all the way back to biblical theology um, and contrasts the two features of the biblical outlook. Um, one is its emphasis on human agency uh, and the other it's harsh harshness towards those who suffer misfortune uh and he talks about this an anthropocent anthropocentric god which spends most of his time responding to the promptings of human beings so rewarding their goodness punishing their sins god becomes paradoxically beholden to us, compelled insofar as he's just to give us the treatment we have earned. And so there's, he's got this roots in that, you know, we somehow deserve good or bad fortune uh, doled out by God, depending on our actions, um, given that we've got agency. Uh, and and how, well, interestingly enough, it's something I've never really put together before. Um, if we spin forward to the the puritanical work, work ethic gets out of that belief that God is watching us and is going to reward or, or punish us. Um, yeah, that's Max Webern. He also quotes yeah. Max Webern, which you, which you don't often see in, let's say, American literature. Uh, but I live in a German-speaking part of Europe. Uh, in my book, it's uh, page uh, 56. And it's even uh, it's the pro uh, Protestant ethics and uh, uh, Max Weber explains capitalism by uh, by religion. And so the, let's say the Protestants are not are not able, or they're not allowed to spend, or um, they they should they should live their sober lives. So the only thing is left is that all the all the money they earn, they can only uh, um, invest in further growth. And they become even mm. more, uh, even richer, etc. But but what I also find very interesting is what you just quoted. I didn't make this whole connection to the strong uh, role of religion, which 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 it plays in American politics, uh, and 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 where he really understands that religion and the way of 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 talking about America. I mean, I mean, often you have American politicians say the Bible and thank God and. Etc. Etc. But it's it, it. There's a much more intellectual level uh, in this, and I I I think he he explains this in a very very good way. How how these things are interconnected, uh, mm. or have become interconnected. So 
in the end, what he says is this the American dream is connected to religion. So God uh, uh, helps those who have become successful. And, and that's a kind of, of using this Max Weber uh, theory. So if you are successful, uh, that's also a kind of reward by God. And this is, this is, this is in a very strong way interconnected. And on the other hand, something is interconnected that America as the big example and successful nation, it has become successful and it is the biggest nation because it's, it's God given, so to say. Yeah, it's God given as a as a reward for our hard work. I mean, yeah, in, in, yeah, in, in the meritocratic understanding. And, yeah. and, and the funny thing is that coming from a very small country in the Netherlands, if you just see, let's say, economic output per capita, or doesn't matter what kind of statistics, all those small countries are doing much better. So it's even from a statistical point of view, it's not even correct. So mm. it's, it's from a number, it's correct because the country is just much bigger. But if you would, let's say, economic output per capita or uh, criminal offenses or life expectancy, et cetera, et cetera. And he also mentions this, that life expectancy goes, goes down in the US. So, so, so there is a kind of statement because we are the biggest country. We deserve this. I got. But it's not even the case if you would take these economic numbers and you would divide them by the population. Or if you would take mm. life expectancy, and that's also what Michael Sandel explains. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Um, although I think, to some extent, his argument—I well, don't know—seems to me to be undercut when he talks about this meritocratic sensibility existing is not just an American phenomenon; it's not just a, a Christian, you know, phenomenon. Because he he, he, <laughs> he gives this example of a Chinese student, um, yeah, responding. Uh, to to um, whether or not rich people, well, whether it's not rich people deserve to live longer, right? And he says, the student says, having earned their wealth, rich people are meritorious and so deserve to live longer. Um, but but I suppose when I think about it, the, the Chinese society is similar in the sense that you know they don't revere a, a god. They're not. They don't. They don't have this. You know this idea of um, by the grace of God go I. It's a very sort of materialistic, um, from what I understand of it, society. And so I, I wonder if the common theme is not so much, um, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not so much the theological underpinnings of the society. It's more to the extent to which it's it's materialistic. Yeah, I mean, if you talk only about the meritocracy, it's not a it's mm. not a specific American phenomena. Mm. This combination of, of, let's say, deserving uh, in combination with, let's say, being very big, eh, because that's the chapter where the chapter is all about. Mm. Uh, then there is this American connotation, but the Chinese are in a way much more materialistic or capitalistic than the Americans. And so if you, if oh, you, if you, if you see this, but it's also, that's it also has to do um with uh kind of um let's say it's also with former communist regimes uh if you if you were not able to spend your money on cars and luxury goods etc uh and and then suddenly you can then 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 you do as uh 
as as you want this kind of kind of maturity in your society and mm. and and if those material goods are just there then then people start to differentiate in another way in a more intellectual way or even buying buying less and also talking about that they buy less yeah, because uh, the differentiator uh, changes mm. um I wonder if we should talk a bit about, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how you know, the, the role of educational institutions um, and the sorting machines, um, which, which seem to be the engine of this. I mean, the way he, he, his thesis seems to suggest, right, the, the engine of meritocracy is, is the Institute of Higher Education. And he charts the, you know, there's this central figure at Harvard, um, James Bryant Conant, uh, 1940s president of Harvard University, um, who first started um, this project to open up admissions to Harvard and uh, move it to be a, a more meritocratic um, system. And uh yeah how how he instituted these these sat tests right so uh which uh, at least initially were thought to be a more you know, pure assessment of intelligence and uh and and opened up entry from a uh, you know, much bigger proportion of the population um I find it a very strong part because he explains that in the end, the conclusion was that it was counterproductive. Mm. So the, the starting point was a noble one. The idea was to give equal opportunities. So uh, this old idea of meritocracy about social mobility. And then there are a lot of examples in the book where he where he shows that let's say if you are from a richer family and then you know a test, then you send your children to kind of pre-boarding, uh, let's say schools or classes where you spend money, so that your children will have higher scores in this test. And then and then and then the effect is counterproductive. Right. And then, and then he ends what I find very interesting and very funny in a way. That a Harvard professor, let's say, attacks in the end the own, let's say, system, and says in the end, perhaps we just do, should do a kind of. He just takes an example, says, okay, throw all those applications down the down the hall, and just take take or take the the worst or the best out of it, and then and just take the amount uh, you want to admit, and just forget about all the all the stuff, etc. Yeah, and, then, and, and, I, then, and, and then you have this connection to voting or to choosing and elections in the in the Greek uh, polis of Athens. People were just chosen. They just say, okay, Richard, you are in the parliament uh, for this period. It was not asked if you would like to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting proposal. He, he called it a qualified lottery, right, that we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
lottery of the qualified year. As long as you meet a minimum standard, all of the applications above that minimum standard. Uh, but what I didn't know is that if your parents spend a lot of money, I mean, there's a whole chapter on this. If they spend a lot of money and if they are a donor of this university, there are also places reserved at this university. Right. Which, yeah. which, which, I mean, I didn't know that. I thought, okay, yeah, they spent money, et cetera. And I also knew that 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 you have, if you have more financial means, that that the schools, uh, which which let's say you, you send your children to, they have a higher chance of 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 ending as an Ivy League university. But it even goes much further. I didn't know that that if that there also were places reserved for people who just spend a lot of money. Yeah, you know, a, a big donor. Yeah, and he's quite he's a kind of, he's pragmatic on that, right? He says. You know, that he could see Hawaii universities might still want to do that. Um, um, but just maybe maybe those kids get a few extra tickets in the lottery. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I suppose there is a pragmatic argument you can make, not, not supporting it or, or not, but uh, that these, these institutions, it's a way for them to get funding. Um, yeah, so, so I thought that, that was... Um, yeah, it's fascinating to think that I suppose where he starts on how do we one of the places he starts on how do we move away from this meritocratic uh, society is to take the meritocracy out of out of higher education, and then and then this yeah chapter seven he follows up so that's looking at education. Uh, he now he now looks at recognizing work in a whole new way. Um, and I suppose putting back the dignity and the respect and the honour um, for those people working in jobs that don't require a degree, and and also and he also cites some history which I hadn't hadn't really uh, I wasn't aware of before about how you know in the earth. In the early days of the labor unions, that there was a huge emphasis on um, education, and they would they would insist on reading rooms within factories, and um, and that you know if you think about the modern day workplace, there's 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 that that doesn't really exist, does it? There's no there's no project in that sense amongst labor unions to to educate, to develop civil civic virtue amongst union members that I'm certainly that I'm aware of. Um, but he, he alludes to that in, yeah, in his chapter, recognizing work, it's both recognizing the value of these jobs, but also a commitment to the development of people, not just in terms of their vocational skills, but their broader, uh, development as human beings in those roles. But what I find also interesting is that some are really intellectual bites in this book is for instance the fact that social the question is did the social mobility really change if you mm. take just more than a couple of centuries or or because because the whole idea or the belief or the promise of meritocracy would it would be more justice i mean because he also refers to john rawls uh, and the theory of justice i think in the book mm. But but let's say the starting point was let's say in the in the beginning of the 20th century, or even the end of the 19th century, if you would educate people with a labor background, that would be 
and you would create social mobility, you would have a more, ju- yeah, a, a more correct uh, society or a more, uh, would, uh, more justice in, 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 in by creating these chances. Question is, mm-hmm. is this whole experiment of meritocracy was it successful or not? If the social mobility really didn't change, you can say, okay, in, as a whole, our society became more, let's say, affluent, but, but the social mobility perhaps didn't change. And then the big question to me is, and that's also the part I'm missing in the book is, what, in what countries are the differences between the salaries are the lowest? So if you take about uh, this, this, let's say CEO salaries is a good example, but let's say, if you say you can't solve this problem of meritocracy, and if your if your if your your point of view would be everything is important in a society, why should a nurse have a lower salary than somebody who is a doctor or less a let's say a, a doctor? Huh? I mean that's a that's a philosophical mm. ethical question. In, in what kind of societies you're probably ending up in Scandinavia again, the, the, the more justice and, 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 and less populism you have probably in societies where the differences between skilled labor and not non-skilled or, or theoretical and practical labor, etc., are the lowest. And he doesn't dive into that topic, which I, I, I missed a, a little bit. And on the other hand would be, let's say, if you talk about universities, in what countries is it is it just possible to study without the means of your parents, without any difficult exams where your parents have to pay, uh, uh, let's say, to to help you to uh, to, uh, to yeah, to get this entry ticket uh, to Oxford or Cambridge or Ivy League University? So, and then also end up with let's say. The more Scandinavian approach, also, for instance, in Netherlands where I studied, you, you, you. I mean, you had your, your, uh, your normal school. I mean, there were different layers, but then everybody went to university, or let's say a certain amount of people went to university. But it was a kind of it was not an entry exam to be able to study law or to study uh, history or whatsoever. I, I just applied to university and I and I could go to university. That was it. So, so, so on the one hand, you have this kind of social mobility by the educational system, and on the other hand, you have if you more zoom out from an ethical question, why should somebody who is at a theoretical schooled uh, job or theoretical background, why should this person earn much more than somebody who does practical stuff? And, and yeah, and 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 would that be also a solution to avoid populism because that was the starting point because he's extremely angry about Trumpism. Yeah. And, and, and also this arrogance of the elites, which thinks, okay, I don't have to thank uh, anybody because I did it myself. And what I yeah. also find interesting is that he explains, which I also didn't realize that much, but I think he took it from Piketty, is that this political voting totally changed. So he, he then describes that, let's say, the people in the past who, let's say, were the highest layer of society were Republicans. 
and and the Democrats or the or Labour or the left wing were, uh, let's say, the parties who took care of underprivileged people or Labour blue scholar uh, people. And now it's exactly the opposite. So that 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 the 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 underprivileged or the people who really fell. Uh, those people who feel ignored, they are voting on the right side of the political spectrum. We have become Republicans, so to say. And the intellectuals have become the one who votes for the Democratic Party. And he yeah. also describes Hillary Clinton and Obama, who because of this system of meritocracy where, where they succeeded, they have forgotten how lucky they were. And they talk, Obama is the one who talks much more than any other president about smart and intelligent and, and uh, social mobility and everybody's, uh, everybody who, who wants to make it can make it, et cetera. But he, he doesn't understand that he's the exception to the rule. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, well and, and, and just valorizing his own intellect as, as virtuous in itself, right? And deserving, you know, and, and that being um, something to be, yeah, lionized as opposed to considered as a gift from God, right? That, that's something that he, he, that he has no right to take pride in. I think that's, that, that's something that this meritocratic society gives us, right? It doesn't sort of accept that we have gifts from God, that we've done nothing to earn, and that we should be humble in the face of that. And I'm guilty of that, right? I've definitely sourced some of my identity and pride from my own intellect. Um, and that's, I think, an important point he makes in the book. Um, he, he also says, I think, I says, it's the only topic where it's still allowed to, to, have, a, uh, to, to have discrimination. Mm. So, and, and also, oh, oh yeah, I, I'm doing exactly the same. I also use it's, it's, it's dumb or somebody doesn't understand. Yeah. So it's it's. I find it interesting, but it's this kind of technocratic behavior we we have in our culture, and and there's also a quote he, he quotes in Obama. He says, "Yeah, people who lost their jobs, they just didn't adapt fast enough to the changes." So I mean, but if you work in a steel factory, uh, it's not so easy with fifty to to become a computer scientist or to become a developer. Uh, mm. So, so it's, it's, I mean, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more complicated. So especially if you are working in, in certain industries, which are just uh, disrupted by globalization, if you work in a textile factory uh, in the past, or if you work in the steel factory and it's moved to Korea or to China, what can you do? If, yeah. you are, if you are a tax lawyer or a consultant or uh, whatsoever, it's okay. Those people even get got more work because of the globalization. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's what he, you know, and he makes that point, right? That the gains of global, globalism have accrued to the, to the educated. Uh, and in real terms, the uneducated uh, have lost yeah. uh, money. Over the course of globalization, there is global competition. Where do you produce your textiles? But if you are a specialist for tax law in New York, 
for, I don't know, kind of uh, legal entities, you are not competing with somebody in China who could do the, the work for, let's say, just a fraction of your salary. Uh, yeah, and he also yeah. shows that those, those salaries go up and those people tell those people who work in steel factories, you just didn't adapt to globalization. You mm. should have uh, done a computer course or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and to your point about this sort of flip of the political parties, it just reminds me just, I think, last week, Tucker Carlson, you know, the, the right-wing pundit for Fox News, was asked um, if self-driving trucks be, do become available in the near future, future, would you support regulation to ban them to save the job, jobs of truck dri- drivers? And Tucker Carlson, you know, <laughs> icon of the right in the Americans, said, in a heartbeat, yes, I would regulate. Uh, and I would ban self-driving trucks. Um, yeah, yeah, so fascinating how that's, that's now, now flipped. And I think that speaks to something else he says in, his, in, in the book, uh, Chapter 7, Recognizing Work. He, uh, he makes the point that uh, a lot of the, the, the economists who have shaped our, you know, our modern society, uh, he, he quotes Smith here, consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. That's Adam Smith in Wealth of Nations. Uh, and the interest of the producer ought to be attended to only insofar as it may be necessary for promoting uh, that of the consumer. Uh, and then John Maynard Keynes uh, proclaimed that consumption is the sole and object, sole end and object of all economic activity. So there you've got two, uh, two of the most influential economists um, you know, of, the, of our modern age. Uh, both putting consumer uh, ahead of producer. And we see it in the mantra of so many of today's organizations. I mean, customer first. It's, yeah, it's the modern mantra for business, right? And, and he, yeah, he's making a very strong point that that's, um, you know, that's not honoring the worker. That's, um, that's not celebrating you know, the contribution to the common good of the, of the worker, um, and that that's missing. That's missing, and that's why um, one you know, one of the reasons that we have um, so much despair, as he puts it. Right? It's it's that we've we've yeah, and why there is so much discontent is that we we've stopped honouring the the factory worker, uh, both in terms of. Their, their share of the economic rewards, but you know, just more more generally in the way that they get described in political discourse, and that's something he sees as needing to change. Yeah, I think it has those two aspects. Eh? On the one hand, we have to honor more the stuff which really matters, uh, and 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 their uh, let's say the the whole globalization. Um, went in the wrong direction. Let's say. What, I, what we just explained, if you talk about the factory worker, but in a way, mm. it's the same with people who work in hospitals and teachers, et cetera, et cetera, or um, uh, people cleaning the streets, et cetera. Uh, and, 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 and the amount of, 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 of salary rises of people who do a lot of stuff where you really have to question that David Graeber bullshit jobs, if this, is this really mm. something which creates value for a society? That's, that's, that's one thing. But on the other thing, I Think is that if you really, I think we, a lot of skilled people believe in this idea of meritocracy, but I think after reading this book, you become more humble mm. um, because you think, okay, 
what is merit and what has been luck. And we know this, but, but in such a strong way, uh, Michael Sandel confronts the reader with it. Is um, let's say is for to my point exceptional because he has so many aspects he takes um, where he just says you're just a lucky bastard uh, and 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 um, you should at least realize and 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 he he in the book he takes Obama as the most example which he in a way punishes with his scientific uh, way of research. Uh, and then also explaining that that one of the reasons Trump won was also the fact that this left-wing intellectuals, and not only Obama, but also Hillary Clinton, etc., and you have this all over the place, um, were not humble enough. Yeah. They were not humble enough. And they've not been trained to be humble. I mean, that's the point, right? They've not been. They've actually been trained in the opposite direction to to lionise their own intellect. They're being they're being told at all these elite schools, you know, you're the top. And I've had this right when I first joined Arthur Anderson as a management consultant. I remember one of the first meetings. You know, you are the cream to the cream of the of university. You you've you've beaten thousands of people to be working here. You you know, you're a spe- you're a special boy, right? Like it, always telling you to construct your identity and your sense of your own worth. Through purely my intellect, which you know, I was born with good genes, and you know, had a great middle class upbringing that meant you know that celebrated education and supported me with my homework and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it, it, at no point was I ever instructed to be humble. And that's what I find. If I really have put it in one word, that is also this magazine is called Fortune, mm. and Fortune is Fortuna. You're working yeah. lucky bastard. Yeah. So, so I think uh, it's a kind of, yeah, if we want to avoid populism or if we want to avoid revolution or if you want to avoid uh, more of the stuff we have seen with Trump and also Brexit and also other, uh, let's say, populist tendencies, uh, I think we have to look into the mirror, become more humble when we are uh, on, the, on a more privileged position in society. And on the other hand, we should let's say, take this kind of self-esteem. I think it's a lot about self-esteem. Uh, we, should, we should understand that if you want to keep society together, we, uh, we have to, um, yeah, we have to honor uh, a, a huge part of society in a, in a totally different way if, you, if we compare this with what we're doing now. Yeah, and, and then again, we talked about what may be missing from the book. I- I don't think he had a very good answer because he talks about this need for you know for a for a public conversation um, about you know, the virtue of of different roles in society, but but where I just don't see where that venue emerges. Like it does it. it, it I don't think the state's going to provide it. Like maybe educational establishments provide it for those who go there, right? But that's as, as he points to, right? That's only a, a small section of the, of society. Um, he refers, uh, but not very profoundly, to Piketty. Eh? Mm-hmm. Uh, Piketty uh, has done a lot of proposals in that direction. Uh, yeah, and then it's the whole topic of uh, inequality. How yeah, do sol- how do you solve this? So in the end, it's a really simple answer. You have to te- you have to text those people much stronger. Uh, but but 
But the starting point is people have to understand that if they're more privileged, that they were lucky. So, so that's their honor and their duty to pay back because they were just lucky bastards. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if you don't feel the need to thank society that you were lucky, you say, no, I all deserved it and I, I did it myself. I didn't need any help from anybody. Then, then as this is kind of ethical, philosophical self-reflection is just not there anymore. And that, yeah. that's, what, that's why I find Obama so interesting. So he knows he is the exception. First black American president. Uh, went through the ranks. Uh, I mean, he is an intelligent guy, and no doubt about this. But he he should be have more aware that telling people, if you want if you want to make it, you can make it in uh, in God's own country. That's just not the case. No, the, well, yeah, I, I I think that's right. And and something he, he doesn't because for me, you know, an answer to that, and I say this as somebody who is not a practicing Christian. In fact, I don't practice any religion. The obvious answer to that that place where we can have this conversation and we can be encouraged to be humble and we can be encouraged to look out and reach out to, you know, fellow men and women and, you know, offer a hand of um, charity, you know, that, that would have been the church. That, but of course, interestingly, he makes the case that where we, where we are right now started, um, yeah, with a theor, um, theological, you know, impetus, if you like. So, so I don't, yeah, I, I, and I don't think the book answers it. I certainly don't have an answer to that. But like, what encourages that conversation? What encourages that self-reflection? What encourages that humility? Uh, you know, what is the force in society that does that? And I, and I don't think it's the state. I mean, one of the things he talks about is, you know, do we, do we tax the financial industry more because they, they're only 15% or something of, of, of financial activity contributes to the real economy? He makes that point. Um, do, do we subsidize the wages of, of working people? And so these, in a sense, are technocratic answers to how we solve inequality, and that perhaps you know solves part of the problem, but it doesn't address this bigger problem of of, of the cohesiveness of society and avoiding situations where politicians describe half of the population as deplorable, right? Like that, I'm still left at the end of the book thinking, you know, what's the answer to that? Um, and certainly, I think some people do think that's in religion, and we see a rise of. Of, of the Christian right in in the states right now, and there's a there's you know there's a massive interest in. And I've noticed recently that a, a Christian nationalism, you know, a book was hugely popular on, on Amazon and is very popular in certain you know right wing circles in the states. So there are obviously a lot of people who feel like it is a return to religion. Um, is that the answer? Is that the way that we can we're going to see society go? I don't know, but if I, I really wanted to chat to her about that. I think what uh, what he could have added is that if you uh, it's about trust uh, in society, in the institutions, in your neighbors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, there's a correlation with inequality. So if you would just mm. if 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 let's say low paid jobs would be paid better, and people would have less uh, let's say um, anxiety uh, about Sending their people to school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that 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 that's the main the main topic. I mean, if you lose your job and then you also know that you can't send your children to college, etc., it's all interconnected. So yeah. if, you, if these things are separate and the and the state cares about education or hospitals whatsoever, no matter if you have a job or not or a low paid or a high paid job, 
it creates an enormous rest in society. And, uh, and I think that still is the European model, if you compare this with the US. And that's also what I'm missing in the end of the book. Uh, but in Europe, we're going down the same road. So I think it's also kind of, um, it's also interesting to read about, uh, let's say, the situation in the US, because normally you have the same developments just 10 or 20 years later in our own societies. Mm. Mm. Well, privatization of the whole education is, is, is a huge topic nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, which is another example, right? I mean, it, there it's about, it's a sort of consumerist approach to it, right? It's like, what's the end product can I do with it? No. Um, it's not about de developing the, the learner and their character and, yeah, and so on. So it's uh, not, well, yeah, certainly not critical thinking. Yeah. Okay, well, great to have um, had the opportunity to review this. Thank you. It was a, it was a great suggestion. I'm also thinking I'd love to get Michael Sandel on my other podcast and really about some of these questions. So I'll, uh, I'll, def I'll definitely uh, ask him. Good. All right. Well, thanks once again. We'll be back with another, another book uh, for the next episode. But uh, thank you, Tom, for your time. Uh, yeah, thank you, Richard. I enjoyed it. talking about the book. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Read This with me, Richard Atherton, and my fantastic co-host, Tom van der Lubbe. If any of the material in this show resonated with you, if you're thinking, perhaps, how could I take these ideas and apply them in my own leadership or, or take them forward into my own organization, then I would love to have a conversation with you about that. If that feels like that could be a valuable use of your time, then please do click on the Calendly link in the description for this episode. And that will allow you to book a slot directly into my calendar. And I hope to speak to you soon.